On the wall to my left, you'll notice the lesson tonight is entitled Mary and Jesus' Birth. And as noted already at the outset of our song service as it began, we at least made a brief comment as to the fact of Jesus' birth and Mary's perspective in relation to it. We will give our, our attention to that this evening, and I might even suggest that this is the first of a two-part series, at least as, as I have it envisioned, in which next Sunday evening we're going to look at Joseph's perspective. So tonight is that relating to Mary's perspective and next Sunday evening, so you can be looking forward to that with me as we cast the spotlight upon Joseph's perspective on that occasion. Certainly it would be reasonable to appreciate, of course, we know what season of the year it is, and we're well aware of the fact that there are many who will at least turn their attention somewhat to a consideration of the birth of our Savior, maybe on this season of the year when on other occasions it seems so far removed from their thinking. We by no means are suggesting, as was already mentioned tonight, that of course the Bible endorses some special nature with respect to celebrating the day of His birth. That's nowhere found in the pages of Scripture. But certainly as noted, we can so be so thankful for not only the nature of His death and that of His life, but the fact that it was the great plan of God that the, of course He would be born. Sure enough, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4 verse 4. And when that fullness came, indeed, God selected a particular man and woman, Mary, of course, being the woman, and she would give birth to Him. And we're going to study a little bit about her perspective tonight. As we do that, let's begin with at least these, these initial considerations. We know so well that the nature of the Lord's birth is such a moving moment. We are well aware as we thumb through the 66 Bible books that when we arrive at the end of Malachi, we are still with such expectation awaiting the one coming that it's been so often prophesied. In fact, as early as Genesis chapter 3, it, was, it would appear that very clearly the prophecy concerning His coming took place. And many times through the later Old Testament writers, we appreciate that David was told he would come. Even Job knew he was going to come. And many of the later prophets looked with such expectation toward the moment when in fact the one would come who they had been so blessed to prophesy about but didn't live long enough to see. Peter in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse number 9, would comment very powerfully to the fact that they longed to look into the grace which you and I now have in reality and in provision. Tonight, I wonder how Mary looked upon this. What was it that she perceived relative to the one that was, of course, the one she was going to give birth to? You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, when Gabriel came and shared with Mary some of the attributes and features of the one that she would give birth to. What a monumental set of statements. As we begin our study, let's do it like this. First, what do you and I have from the knowledge of the Word of God as can be said concerning Mary? Almost immediately the first thing, in fact, the first few things you and I shall note will, I think, be very moving, rather compelling. But the first, it seems to me, would be wise to consider this one first. Mary was a virgin. And in fact, the text of the Word of God is exceedingly clear as it relates to this point. But you'll go ahead and notice. On more than one occasion, it was very clearly said that she was espoused to Joseph. That word espoused carries with it a very interesting thought concerning your day and mine. 
It's true, isn't it, that the details and the specifics of the way that men and women marry, that varies a little bit from culture to culture. You and I are very familiar with the way it's done here in 21st century America. But surely in the ancient era, there were some different traditions. There were some different features and aspects of it. The fact is, at that time, when a young man and a young woman, or when a man and a woman made that determination, decision to get married, there was a period in which they were engaged, but it was more than that. It already had an element of binding character to it. Now, there was a point, a moment when it was finalized in the sense there was this monumental feast. And you and I remember several references to them are found within the pages of the Bible. But there would be a feast in which the groom would go to her house and get her, and then take her to the place of his abode or maybe even his father's abode, and there they would cohabit that evening. But even prior to that, during that period of espousal or engagement, it was already a binding matter. It already carried with it a significant weight. Maybe in fairness, you could appreciate something then very interesting is said, despite the fact that she was engaged, if you will, she had not lived with Joseph yet. Mary was still a virgin at this point, not having known a man, sexually pure. Maybe in light of that, you'll notice some of these initial comments. In fact, in Matthew 1 verse 25, the interesting statement is made, she didn't know Joseph until after Jesus was born. In fact, the Word of God had even prophesied that not only would it be the case that she would, of course, be a virgin at the time of the conception, she would be a virgin at the time the Lord was born. And indeed it was. She didn't know a man until even after Jesus himself was born. Not only might we make those statements, look at what comes next. It is into that circumstance you and I come face to face with Gabriel's visit to her. In the very text that was read in our hearing earlier, John read for us from Luke chapter 1. I would ask you to go back to verse number 26 and notice how things begin. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great." and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. We stated a moment ago, and may we keep in mind again, Mary had not known a man. And yet, you and I royal recognize that in the natural order of births, it requires a man and a woman. No wonder Mary was surprised. No wonder she was a bit shocked. Here she had never known a man sexually, and yet the angel tells her she's going to give birth. The angel informs her she's going to conceive and therefore give birth to a baby boy. You and I remember well that this matter of a virgin giving birth was something prophesied within the pages of the Old Testament. 
In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, in the days roughly 750 years prior to this, the God of heaven had revealed something to King Ahaz. The prophet Isaiah, as he shared information with him, remember Ahaz was such that he wanted a sign. And God said, there shall be a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You and I, as we look upon that, might appreciate, I'm sure that they in Isaiah's day didn't understand the fullness of it. But as the centuries roll by and we appreciate that God was going to tabernacle in the flesh and the virgin would conceive and bring forth the Christ child, we do see powerfully that that was prophesied that it would happen. In fact, another prophecy toward that end found in Jeremiah 31 hearkens us to appreciate exactly the same. Verse 22 of that chapter. Amazing, isn't it, to contemplate then? Mary's thoughts and her reactions when the angel told her. Did you notice what Mary's reaction was in verse 34? I particularly stopped reading because I wanted us to cast a spotlight upon that now particularly. After the angel shared these things with her, Mary quickly said, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Mary was well understanding of the nature of the natural order of things, and so she reasonably asked, I don't understand how this can be. I don't understand how this can possibly occur. Doesn't it seem impossible? I would ask you to notice that in the year 2003, there was a Harris poll taken of Christians or those that claimed to be Christians, and of that number, shockingly, 7% of them said they did not believe in the virgin birth. Their understanding of what was possible and what was not had so clouded their judgment and clouded what they perceived could happen, they didn't believe it even though the Bible says that that's the way it was. You and I know so often through the pages of the Word of God that we see those occasions when miraculous events took place. This was another one of them. As we close that slide together, might we use this point to say, there are a number of individuals on the earth today who think that Mary was a perpetual virgin. You and I know well that that's not taught in the Bible either. For after, in fact, that she knew Joseph later after Jesus was born, the text of the Bible informs us there were several children born to her and Joseph. You can find listings of them in Matthew 13, verse 55, for example. We know at least four boys. We are not told how many girls, but there apparently was at least two because the plural word is used. Apparently, at least six children born to that union. Mary didn't remain a virgin through all her life. She was, however, until the time Jesus was born. Doesn't that cast a tremendous consideration to you and me about the way in which God so blessed the human family to bring among us the very one that would be our Savior? What else about Mary might we notice? Consider with me for a moment her character. Consider this with me. Over the course of the ages, it had been such a special thing to consider the means by which God would bring into the human family the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who would occupy that central position of directing men and women to the God of heaven, Think how many Jewish women hoped that they'd be the one. I wonder how many young Jewish girls grew up instilled within them by their dad and mom. Maybe you'll be the one that can bring into this world the Christ child, the one that's the anointed. 
the one that is that special member of whom all humans will be blessed. I have to believe nearly every young Jewish girl hoped that she'd be the one. Mary it was. Why'd God choose Mary? There had to have been thousands and thousands of Jewish girls living at the time. Why did He pick Mary? What about her perhaps was of sufficient consideration? Several things might be mentioned. Surely her character would be one of them. Notice that twice in this text, verses 28 and 30, this statement is made. Hail thou that are highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Highly favored. She had been looked upon by the God of heaven and she had been particularly selected as the one to give birth to Jesus. In verse number 30 it puts it like this, For thou hast found favor with God. All the considerations that we have suggest that she was a very faithful young lady, a person who had a great amount of respect for the truthfulness of the Word of God and who strove to live in harmony and compliance with it. Let's look even further though, for it seems to me there might be more that can be said. You might notice. Look again at verse 34. Then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Think again about the purity apparently characteristic of her life. Today, you and I know well what might be said. You approach a typical high school or teenage young lady and she might not be able to say, I've not known a man. Maybe she hadn't been pure and chaste. Maybe she hasn't guarded her innocence. Maybe she hasn't abstained from sexual relations with, with a young boy. Mary could, however, say, I have not known a man. She was still a virgin. The purity characteristic of that which was her no doubt spoke volumes about the kind of young woman she was. You'll notice in light of that, perhaps that is at least a good example for all of us. Think about this, especially young ladies. What if you'd been living 2,000 years ago? Could you have been the person chosen? Would you have been a person pure in terms of sexual relations, faithful unto the, Lord, faithful unto the God of heaven? Could you have been the one chosen? Next week, men, we're going to take care of ourselves. Could you and I have been selected as maybe the one to be the, the father figure of him on earth? It paints a rather dramatic picture to all of us. God did pick Mary. Look at these verses that challenge you and me in regard to the purity of our life. In Psalm 24, verse number 3, Who is it that will dwell in the holy hill of God? Among other things, those with a clean hands and a pure heart. If you and I aren't living in a pure fashion, if we aren't characteristic of those who conduct themselves after the demand of purity, we have no reason to expect we shall see God. For blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8. Doesn't that speak volumes to you and me about desiring ourselves to so conduct ourselves purely? We could go beyond that and perhaps notice in 1 Timothy 5.22. As Paul wrote to his young son in the faith, Timothy, he told him a magnificent statement. Here was a young man who in his, in his future had the privilege and power of preaching perhaps for many years. Three little words. Timothy, keep thyself pure. Now that's not only good advice for preachers or elders, it's good for all of us, isn't it? 
to keep ourselves pure. Maybe one final passage. In 2 Timothy 2.22, again to the same young man, Paul on that occasion would say, Flee youthful lust, but rather out of a pure heart, direct the service of yourself to God. It's not difficult to appreciate the emphasis given to purity in the life of Timothy, but throughout the Word of God, the emphasis given to all of us in that regard. Mary appeared to be a pure young woman. Maybe some final thoughts on that particular message. Look at how it closes in verse 38. After Gabriel had shared with Mary the features that you've been the one chosen, you have been the selected one to give birth to this one that will be the son of the highest, she finally had to give an answer, a reply if you please, and this is what she said. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Isn't it beautiful to consider the submissiveness characteristic of Mary? After God shared with her, after the message of the angel bringing this to her, you are going to be the one. Think about how many things probably crossed her mind in those few moments after the angel said all this. What's it going to mean for me? And what's it going to mean for my family? What's it going to mean in regard to my relation to a number of others? After considering, she simply said, I'm your handmaiden. I'll do whatever you want me to do. What a submissive spirit. Shouldn't that be characteristic of you and me in our service to God? God, whatever you command, I want to do it. And I want to do it the way you say to do it. I want to do it for the reason you say to do it. Mary appeared to be a young woman exactly like that. She wasn't rebellious. She didn't exude any stubbornness. She was not obstinate. She was simply an humble and submissive young woman who desired to be pleasing to the God of heaven above all other things. With her being selected in this way, she simply said again in verse 38, Be it unto me according to thy word. The submissiveness perhaps leads us to one final thought. There's a song recorded in Luke chapter 1 that she sang as she rejoiced and celebrated over this news that had been given to her. Would you please notice as I read together the words of this song. Beginning in verse 46, Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for He hath regarded the lowest state of His handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away." He hath opened his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. What a beautiful set of magnifying statements to God. As you and I think about these aspects of Mary's character, maybe they immediately lead in our mind to consider something else about Mary. What about her faith? We stated earlier that of all the young women, God chose Mary to be the one to give birth to the Christ child. We've seen her character was a sterling and exemplary character of purity. What about her faith? 
Can we conclude much about her faith? Well, perhaps these thoughts are worthy of your consideration and mine. I myself find it remarkable to at least try and imagine Mary's reaction. Consider for a moment if the angel had come to you while, again, women, you've never known a man, and said, you're going to give, a, give birth to a child. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. Would it have been tempting to laugh like Sarah did? Would it have been tempting to say, I just don't see how it can be? Would you have been tempted to laugh off the word of the angel as being nonsensical? I'm sure any of us perhaps can at least imagine such. But look at how Mary reacted. After listening with care and concern and attentiveness to that which the angel said, she said, be it according to what you have said. But think about what that was going to mean for her. Think again what that was going to mean for her. She was going to be a woman and be pregnant, but she'd never known a man. What would society think? Let's start with Joseph. She was engaged to this man, Joseph. Never been with him sexually. What's Joseph going to think when here I am pregnant but not by him? No wonder we can understand why Joseph determined to put her away privately. No doubt Joseph thought she's been with another man. Somebody not me. Think again what that would mean for Mary. Pregnant by no human on earth. You can imagine how Joseph was concerned. You can imagine how perplexed and confused he was. We'll talk more about that next Sunday night. But look at this. What about her family? Think about that moment when she first shared with her dad and mother the news of this, what Gabriel had told her. Can you imagine sitting down at the table? Dad, Mom, I have some news for you. I'm going to be pregnant. Who's the father? Is it Joseph? No, it's not Joseph. Well, Mary, who is it? The Holy Spirit. Can you imagine her parents' reaction? Can you imagine the disbelief that might have, in fact, crossed their mind? Again, all Mary said was, Be it unto me according to thy word. Not only her family, what about society at large? You and I know well that at least there was a time when it was looked upon rather disgracefully for a woman to be pregnant, unmarried. Remember, she was only a spouse to Joseph. They weren't fully married yet. What would society think? Can you imagine people talking under their breath? Do you know what Mary did? Have you seen the, the bump? Do you, do you know what Mary has done? None of that bothered Mary, apparently. All she said was, Be it unto me according to thy word. I would think it's fair to say Mary had a tremendous faith. An amazing faith that led her to simply be the one that had been chosen by God and she was happy to comply with it. You'll notice the definition of faith brings that challenge quite frankly to you and me today. Now I realize we're not going to give birth to a Christ child. But what is the essence of faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 still says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Romans 10 verse 17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Isn't it at the most basic level the case that faith is doing what God said to do? Even if I might not understand the fullness of it, even if all the intricacies and details might not be revealed to me, doing what He said to do... And the Bible is filled with examples like that. 
Noah build an ark. But I've never seen it rain. Doesn't matter. Build an ark. Here's how many doors you put in it. Here's the number of floors. Here's the number of windows. And I want you to bring the animals into it because it's going to rain. And Noah did it. Simply by faith he did it. He trusted what God said even if he had not, never seen anything like it. Joshua, you march around the walls of Jericho once a day for six days and then seven times on day seven and you know what? The walls are going to fall. But God, I've never seen any military strategy like that. It doesn't matter. Joshua did it by faith. Today, God says to do things and if we are faithful, we'll do them having to do with the matter of the plan of salvation, the construction, if you please, of the nature of what is the church and the way her worship is done. We do it because that's the way God said to do it, and that's enough. That's what God says He wants, and that's what faith is, isn't it? Just like Mary, what may have seemed impossible. Did you notice verse number 37? For with God nothing shall be impossible. Mary simply said, Be it unto me according to thy word. Her faith was a very great faith. Is your faith and mine that great? Do you and I, in fact, excitedly look forward to doing those things because God said to do them? May I ask you to notice, the operation of faith time and again is presented to us that same way. We won't read the fullness of that honor roll of faith in Hebrews 11, but you and I know well how it's presented. By faith... Abraham did this. By faith, Sarah did that. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, Israel and Jacob and others did that. Their faith led them to actions based solely upon what God said to do. In some of those cases, it still stretches our mind to appreciate the thoroughness and verity of their faith. Abraham, I want you to leave where you live and I want you to go to a place, but I'm not going to tell you yet where you're going. Talk about faith, to simply do it because God said to. The text expressly tells us that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees not knowing where he went. How long did it take him to get to that land you and I would call Canaan? We know they stopped off in Haran, and his own dad died there. And sometime later arriving at that place that later his descendants were to inherit. All the while, he didn't know where he was going. That's faith. You and I know that there's a place called heaven. How do we know that? None of us have ever been there. None of us have ever been there, nor have we known anybody that's come back to tell us anything about it. We know it's true because the Bible says it is. Because God said it, we accept it. And we're going to live in such a way to make it there, aren't we? Faith. Mary's faith appeared to lead her to appreciate the fullness of those things we've studied. We can close that slide by noting what else Gabriel told her. What was Mary told? Well, as you and I read that a moment ago, let's just pick out a few of the thoughts and consider them in some detail. What Mary was told. May I ask you to notice verse 31. Thou shalt conceive in thy womb. Mary, you're going to be pregnant. You're going to bring forth a son. The gender of the baby was told. It's going to be a boy. And furthermore, here's the name that you'll give him. Joseph and Mary weren't left of their own volition to choose the name. 
it says, Thou shalt call His name Jesus. That name was chosen by the great God of heaven for what he, the second member of the Godhead would wear here on earth. Jesus. Isn't that a great name? In fact, might I ask you to notice, that word literally means Savior. It carries with it the thought of Yahweh saves. We studied a lesson back in June in which we looked at that word Yahweh and the great name of God. Jesus, in fact, is the one here, that name chosen. However, more was said for verse number 32 says, He shall be great. I'm sure that as parents, we excitedly think about the possibility and the potential of our children. What's this baby boy going to grow up to be? What's this baby girl going to grow up to be? Mary didn't have any questions in regard to that, for the angel told her, He, this baby that you're going to give birth to, he shall be great. The greatness attached to that which he would become and that which he would do. That greatness leads us to notice Gabriel also said this. He'll be called the son of the highest. Now Mary knew very well she had never known a man. He had no biological father. However, he'd be the son of the highest. And the Holy Spirit would be the one to come upon you, Mary... The Son of the Highest, a reference to the God of Heaven, the Son of God. Not only that, you'll notice the throne of David would be given to Him. Notice verse number 32 and 33. The Lord God shall give unto Him the throne of His father David. It is true, Jesus was descended from David. You could trace the lineage back, and in Matthew chapter 1, that's done for us. The throne of David. David was a great Old Testament king, but this one, this baby Mary that you're going to give birth to, he will be great, the son of the highest. This throne of David given to him, verse number 33 says, he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. There's a reference to the church. We know Jesus wasn't a physical king. It's not like he ruled from Jerusalem like David did. Because Jesus more than once said, My kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. Isn't it fair to say, here we find a beautiful description of that marvelous kingdom over which the Son of God would reign forever. And it's the church. He's reigning over you and me this very night as faithful children of God. You could perhaps appreciate one final quick, quick comment. For there is something at the end of verse 33 that's, as always, so very telling. It says, And of His kingdom there shall be no end. What do you think Mary thought upon hearing all of this? You mean this baby that I'm going to give birth to? He's going to reign over a kingdom that will in fact exist perpetually and permanently? Never is it going to know an end? That's what the angel told her. We know that was prophesied in the Old Testament in Daniel 2.44 on the occasion when that great image was seen and Daniel explained what that dream meant to Nebuchadnezzar. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And sure enough, Mary was told of that kingdom there'd be no end. As you and I close that slide, thinking still further about these statements concerning Mary, what Mary was told perhaps leads us also to think about what Mary knew. What Mary knew, fascinating, isn't it? 
you and I now know very well that Mary was told a lot of things, but the matter that you and I noted at the outset of the lesson is still true. Mary knew she was a virgin when Jesus was born. She knew that he was not Joseph's biological son. She knew that there was no human man on earth which could claim fathership to him. She knew that he was divine. She knew that he was deity. She knew from whence he had come. With all that in mind, why don't we think about some other things? How do you suppose Mary felt in Luke chapter 2 when she and Joseph had gone up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and they had started homeward? And when they started looking for Jesus, they couldn't find Him. I wonder how she felt. God has vouchsafed to me the care of His Son. He has given to me the care of this youngster that would be the great one, the Son of the Highest, and I've lost Him. Can you imagine how she felt? Or let's go on down the stream of time as the cross came close. She had seen for 30 years or so the greatness of this one. She knew again He was divine. He'd never sinned. He'd never made mistakes in the same way that one would recognize sinful character. He was pure and moral in every regard. He faithfully kept the old law of Moses because He was a Jew. As the cross came near and He was tried and they declared Him guilty. I wonder what Mary thought. But He really is the Son of God. You people are trying to accuse Him and of that which He's not guilty of. He really is the Son of God, and I know it to be true. No wonder in Luke 23, 27, the text tells us that as the Lord was walking to the cross, it says there were some women following Him. I can't help but believe Mary was one of them. Can you imagine at a distance as that cross was hanging on His shoulders, dragging it through the streets, Mary knew exactly who He was. She knew exactly He was the Son of God. And these cruel and wicked men were nonetheless determined to kill Him. Mary knew. There's not a doubt Mary knew. What about after they crucified Him? The text tells us Mary was standing at the foot of the cross. Jesus, in fact, looked at her. And he committed the care of her to John. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. John 19, verses 25 and following. She was there. Think of what she thought. The one I see on the cross, he really is the Son of God. I was privileged to give birth to him, but Joseph's not his father. He's the Son of God. What did Mary know? Think about the various scenes and incidents then of all the things that must have crossed her mind. Humans doing things to him, and she knew very well who he was. As we close the lesson tonight, I think we've been impressed with a lot of things. The Bible does inform us about Mary. I know that in this season, many will celebrate matters of his birth, and as great a thought as we appreciate, of course, that is, we still appreciate that biblically we understand so wonderfully that what took place at His birth was overshadowed in, in importance by how He died, the fact of His death. But aren't we thankful He came? Aren't we thankful the fullness of time came and God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law? Galatians 4, verse number 4. 
tonight as we quickly appreciate some of the things we've seen. We've studied the fact of the virgin birth. Mary was a virgin, not only when she conceived Jesus, but even up until the time he was born. We furthermore have noted interestingly about her wonderful character and faith. Finally, in the latter part of the lesson, we noticed what she was told and also what she knew. Perhaps our study of Mary tonight has encouraged us to be faithful, recognizing, of course, the greatness that lies beyond. Through the eye of faith, we look forward to heaven. We look forward to being able to be with Him forevermore. Is your life and mine tonight in compliance with truth? If it is, may we live that way through all the days of our life. But if it's not, why not tonight come at once and make things right? Because the very one that Mary knew to be of God is the very one who is the great Savior and the very one who can save you and me from our sins. Tonight, if you need to render an initial obedience to the gospel, let tonight be the night. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized. If you have attended to that need, but you've allowed distractions and other things to cause you to fall away from faith, come back at, at once to your first love. Keep in mind what Mary knew and serve with faith all your days the very one she knew to be from God. If we can help you tonight... We'd be delighted to do it. We'd only ask you to let us know the way we can do that and do it at once while together we stand and sing.